This is episode 57 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his debut on the podcast. He's the host of the Tough Call podcast and a contributor for heavyhockey.com, Josh Bolton. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a long time coming, and I'm glad it's finally happening. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think you're the last member of the Heavy Hockey Network to be on my podcast, so I'm glad I can finally talk hockey with you. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And uh, you know, when I messaged you earlier today, you said that you had just got off the ice. Uh, Were you playing your own game? Were you coaching? Were you officiating? I coach. I coach. I'm also a president of the Minor Hockey Association and the development coordinator of my local Minor Hockey Association as well. Oh, no way. I coach my son's team and I'm assistant coach of my daughter's team now too. So a lot of time at the rink for sure. (laughs) I was going to say that probably keeps you pretty busy. Uh, How old are your kids? 10 and 12. My daughter actually turns 11 this uh, this weekend. Oh, nice. So was it this year or last year that they've sort of changed the names to all the tiers or uh, levels going up from, uh, say, novice Adam, Peewee, Bantam, Midget to now it's under 7, under 9, 11 and so on, right? Yeah, it was it was last year was when it really went mainstream. It, it took a, a little bit of getting used to. But uh, we still default back to the original names when you're just kind of talking really fast. But in meetings and formal things, we, we've been getting in the habit of referring to it as the numbers. It's a little easier for me because I grew up in a, in a soccer environment, too, and that was all okay. these uh, age levels. But for a lot of hockey people, it's been quite a – it's amazing what how stubborn hockey people can be <laughs> when they feel like they're being forced into something. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up playing both, too, and same thing. Basically, since I was a kid, it was the the U7, U9, all the way up. Uh, so I, I just kind of got used to both. Um, you're, so your kids are going into, w- would your son be going into contact hockey next year? Next year, yeah. Because I remember when I played they had just changed uh, the year that they were starting from. I think it was Bantam. It had been dropped down to Pee Wee. So I was just wondering if it cha- if it differs from province to province, if you know that, or just where you are, if it's always been uh, the same, basically. I believe it's Hockey Canada mandated so so nationally. Don't quote me on that, but I think okay. it's, it's Hockey well, Canada. I'll take your word for it still. <laughs> Uh, it's under 15 it was switched to under 13 like okay. you said for a little but uh, I think there was an interesting study done that uh, the premise was that if you if you taught them how to hit earlier they would be less dangerous when they got older makes sense but uh, I think there was this one study that was done that that found that uh, the the injury level at the under 13 level where they introduced hitting at the younger age increased like dramatically and it didn't show any reduction in injury levels or any meaningful reduction at the under 15 level so they thought well now all we're doing is hurting kids younger right and we're not really getting the benefit that we wanted to when they're older so they decided to just switch it back yeah that would make sense and you know when i started like my first year of contact hockey would have been 2001 2002 so about a little over 20 years ago and at that time i was 12 years old turning 13 halfway through the year and i just felt at that point when it's like grade seven kids and grade eight kids there's such a a difference in size and you know i was i was a pretty tall lanky kid 
So I was as tall as a lot of the the grade eights, but way skinnier and didn't have the mass on me as, you know, you'd run into some kid who weighs 30 or 40 pounds more than you. It just, I felt at that age, it maybe wasn't the best to introduce it because you don't want some kid just getting annihilated out there. Whereas if you bring it up in age group to maybe bantam, it's more likely that you're going to have kids that have developed a little more and that it's maybe more of an even playing field, I'd say. It's it's quite a debate uh, amongst uh, even my friends, but anyone you talk to, it's it's a big debate about when you should introduce hitting. And uh, my thought is that we should teach it right from the get-go, as early as you can. Teach the skills. Mm-hmm. But when I say, oh, we should have we should have hitting as far as, as young as under nine or something like that. People will jump on that and say, yeah, we should, we should let them hit. And I'm thinking, no, we, we can't let it be like all out in the game, but we should be introducing the skills that are involved in that process, the checking process to, uh, to the younger kids so that it's not as, as big a deal when, when they have to do it in a game. It's funny. I talk about this all the time because I teach check-in clinics. I'm one of the people certified oh, okay. to uh, to teach them under Hockey Nova Scotia and Hockey Canada. And uh, the the funny part is, it's it they they were told all their lives eight eight years of development that's thrown out the window, saying don't hit anybody, you're not allowed to touch them, don't take a penalty. And then they take a two two and a half hour course, and then have at her. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> We need to do something better in those eight years building up to it so that it's not it doesn't go from nothing nothing to a free for all. You know, there's, there should be some sort of hockey related method you can teach at, at a younger age. And the Hockey Canada model is uh, is designed that way. Like they don't use the word hit in any of their literature. Check. It's check, check, check. Mm. And to me, a check can be a stick check, a poke check, sure. uh, you know, like it doesn't have to have contact. The contact is just the end result of the process that is checking. But people look at the check or the body contact as the check itself. And that's why I think we should take the term hitting out of the game completely. Because the hit is is the moment of contact. And to have a hit, that's when you do something like stretch out or jump or or do something to initiate contact that isn't there, whereas a, a true proper hockey check is just the conclusion of the entire process of eliminating your opponent from the puck. So I think if we taught it that way at a younger level, it wouldn't be such a big deal at the older level because they wouldn't be looking for the hit. They'd still be just doing the process of checking. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't think it's an issue that's going to be solved overnight. I mean, we might still be talking about this topic 10, 20 years from now of how we can improve it. It's probably going to be one of those things that's always evolving with the game and especially with how the speed of the game is getting quicker and quicker every year too. I mean, these hits are happening uh, at in full flight. So as, as, especially if, as you get to the higher levels. So I think that it's going to be one of those things where they're going to monitor it and decide, you know, should it be raised higher? Should it be taught at a younger age? But it's probably something that's far beyond uh, my reach, at least. <laughs> it's something that we're never going to all agree on. And I wouldn't want to be the people that have to choose the number and put it out there for everybody. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if it was your responsibility to drop it to you nine and then some kid gets just destroyed out there, you don't want that person's parents to like be looking. OK, well, who was the one that made the decision to drop it down? Right. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Well, I'll tell you what, man, before we get any further, 
I just want to get to know a little bit more about your background as an Oilers fan, and then we'll talk more hockey and about your own uh, background with uh, everything tonight. But So let's just start at the beginning. Uh, how did you become an Oilers fan living in Nova Scotia, and when did you start following the team? Well, I feel like I'm going to let you down on a couple of my answers because okay. there's no real drama or excitement about just being on the East Coast and, oh, that's a cool way to, to find out about the team. It's just because... I, I was born in 79, the year Wayne Gretzky entered the league okay. and the Oilers entered the league. And so they they were super awesome for my <laughs> prime years where I was watching hockey. So all I heard about was the Oilers this, the Oilers that, and they were, they were such a fun team to watch. Like even though they were really good, that wouldn't have necessarily been the only reason for me to watch them. But I loved their style of play. They were so reckless and fearless and just all out attack. And they didn't care what they gave up in the back end because they knew they were going to make up for it on the front end. Now, I didn't realize that was their strategy at the time. I was only young, but I, I appreciated what it looked like on the ice, yeah. the speed, the pace, the the scoring chances, the excitement. I just I fell in love with the Oilers brand of hockey. Yeah, they were a counterattack team. They were more than willing to give their opponent the first chance and relatively confident that Grant Fuhrer or Andy Moog was going to stop it at least 85% of the time and that when they would get their chance coming back the other way on a 2-on-1 or 3-on-2 rush, they were going to more likely make their chance count. Exactly. There was You just always knew something was about to happen and that there was just an excitement to that as a kid especially. Yeah. And, you know, I was born in 1989, so 10 years after you. And growing up, I would always hear stories from my dad about what the, you know, the Oilers in the 80s were like. And I would, you know, see clips on TV or I borrowed a book from the school library about hockey in the 80s and read all this. And, you know, I, I started to realize that this was such an exciting era that I really missed out on it. And I've you know, people have joked with me, I've joked with other people that I wish I was born 10 to 15 years earlier so that I could have experienced that that era. I mean, I, I love 80s movies, 80s music, too. So I think that I, I was meant to maybe be born uh, a little earlier than I was. But um, it was just such a great time. And I mean, just to look back and see how exciting those teams were. I mean, what we're watching right now in Edmonton is probably the closest we have seen to that style of hockey with the Oilers in the past 35 years. It really is. And that actually was, a, there was a turning point in my life there where the kind of dark years after the 06 run, um, the, there was just something about the team that I didn't identify with them anymore. They, they just stopped playing Oilers hockey. And, and it was one thing when they were losing and they weren't that good a team. They were st they still had that excitement level to them. They still had that little bit of pop and those characters and the speedy guys that you could get behind. There were, there were a few years there where I didn't recognize them as the Edmonton Oilers at all. They could have had any jersey on. And I was watching them because it was the Oilers, but they just weren't the same team. They didn't have any identity like that at all. And, and they really are... Not only have they just got their mojo back, period, but they've gone full circle. And like you said, they have like their 80s, 90s mojo back. <laughs> this is an exciting time again to be an Oilers fan. Yeah. I, and I mean, when I was growing up, 
there were players like Ryan Smith, who I'll actually ask you about later on in the podcast, but you know, he didn't play the type of style that uh, a Wayne Gretzky or a Yari Curry played in the eighties, but it's still a very effective player, just a, a, a different uh, type of forward. And then you had a guy like Alish Hemsky, who was more of that flashy, uh, silky smooth skater, could make the beautiful cross-ice pass. But he was sort of alone on an island as far as having other talented players to play with. And then you had guys like Jordan Eberle, Taylor Hall, Ryan Nugent Hopkins arriving, and you got all these young, skilled players. But there's no real support pieces around them to build a competitive team. And now you look at where they're at a little over 10 years later with McDavid and Dreisaitl as your foundation pieces. And finally, a group of players around them that they can contend with and build with. This is just, I think we're starting to see, especially with last year's playoff run, the, the beginning of what could be a special decade in oil country. It, it's Oilers fans have to take the time to appreciate what they're seeing. And, not just around the team, but like the the individual players, like a player like McDavid. It's, I know every generation seems to have four or five generational players, and the term gets misused. But but this guy is something special. Like yeah, I, I've I've never seen. I don't think anyone has ever seen a hockey player uh, manufactured in the way Connor McDavid is. He's just such a blend of everything that was good with the old school, but but somehow taking advantage of the training and the accessibility that this new generation has. So he's like the, the ultimate player right now, the, the complete prototype for where the NHL is, but still encompassing everything the yep. NHL was at one point that everyone loved. I don't know how he does it. I, I think he's easily the most advanced hockey player of all time. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I think it was Bob McKenzie uh, back in 2015, when he was drafted, who said, you know, he's got the mind of Gretzky, the hands of Lemieux, the speed of Bure, and the the frame of Fedorov. I mean, he just has all of these tools at his disposal that we've never seen all in one package before. And that's why he's able to just dominate the game. Like, the, I know that there's so much superstar talent around the league right now but the difference between him and the pack it's just it's such a wide gap i guess that's why those guys get paid the big bucks because they just spelled out so clearly and concisely what i tried to ramble through for about a minute there (laughs) i think we both got to the same point (laughs) um so uh, you said that you you started following the team in the 80s. Um, our heavy hockey site creator, Michael A. Bear, obviously lives out in Nova Scotia now too. But uh, how many other Oilers fans do you know out there? I know a lot. And, really? And I don't think it's just because the Oilers fans sort of cultishly gravitate towards the same places. I'm talking about like elementary school friends, like around the same time as me. We we actually had a, a Sunday tradition where that was Sunday afternoon was road hockey day, um, and we we played for the Stanley can, which was this silver old fashioned garbage can like Oscar the Grouch lives <laughs> in, but it was all painted up, and uh, there'd be a, a number of Oilers jerseys being worn during those road hockey games, and, and I know uh, Adam Copus and Brian Hardigan and these guys that I used to grow up with we. They were huge Oilers fans, and even as an adult, I get to know. You see the hats come out of the woodwork. 
uh, as I get to go around the rinks as a coach and meet other coaches. And they're, oh, you're an Oilers fan too. And we kind of look at each other. We used to look at each other sheepishly, and now we just wear our stuff with pride. Um, yeah, well, it's great that the team's, uh, you know, back near the top of the league. So there's a little more uh, bragging rights as opposed to <laughs> might have been a, a bit tougher to be a, an Oilers fan. I mean, when I was... I went to university in Calgary during the decade of darkness. So you you can imagine the the ammo that uh, Flames fans had talking to me. But uh, you know, I still wore my Oilers gear proud there. Um, I was uh, I was taking a drink of water. I almost choked on it when you said that. Yeah, you know, there were some times when it was tough, but you know, the, the Oilers would every once in a while get them in the Battle of Alberta, and I could walk down the the hallways at uh, Mount Royal University with a little more pride. <laughs> Coming, coming to class that day, especially when you're in like a, a broadcasting type program with a lot of hockey fans that are, you know, wanting to get into the sports broadcasting industry. There's a lot. Of, you're going to encounter a lot of Flames fans there, which I did. Um, but I, th- I think it might have been a bit easier experience if I would have went at this time where where we're currently sitting. Um, so because of the four hour time difference in the winter, is is it ever more challenging for you to watch Oilers games live? It's brutal. This is a whole conversation unto itself. Um, it is brutal. I, I for during the dark years, honestly, there was times where I I was like, I'm not even trying. I'm not even going to pretend to stay up for this. There's, it's not even worth it. Um, I but I do try and watch them. I I don't watch a lot of hockey or sports real time. Or anything in my life, real time, since I had kids, uh, especially with a with a sports thing that I really want to see uh, and enjoy, I I can't put it on when they're awake. There's just there's just too much going on, and we're usually running around. So I PBR a lot of stuff and watch it, like even before the days of apps and things. I'm taping games and watching them later. Um, now this this generation, this the way the world is set up is is for me. Because uh, I don't watch anything real time, so I'll PBR right. the thing, record it, or watch it on my phone on my app, and and watch it later. But I'll watch it late at night or the next morning. Um, and then, so so no, I, that doesn't really affect me the time change because of the way I, I consume my products anyway. But during the playoffs, I do like to try and watch them as they're happening. So last year it became this thing where ugh, I can't remember exactly the order now, but it was like. The first game uh, against the Kings, I think I watched the whole thing, and they lost, maybe. And I was at that game. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) And then the second game, I fell asleep after the second, and was it maybe they won? And they woke up six nothing. Yeah, (laughs) we're right. So it ended up being one of those things where if I if I fell so I was playing with a little I fell asleep after the first one game and it didn't go so well right and then I didn't watch any of the game and they won and so it ended up being that I had to watch the first two periods and then go to sleep and watch the third in the morning if I wanted them to win it was this whole bit we had going on okay <laughs> and you know I, I guess when you do live on the opposite coast of where your favorite team plays that would be an added challenge and i mean maybe for that reason alone i would assume that there's a lot of maybe bruins or leafs or habs fans out in the maritimes just because the the time difference makes it a little easier to watch those teams play live 
we have we get a lot of New England sports on TV. Okay. As, as a kid, when you had some TVs that only had the three channels, and you had the yeah the 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 CBC and then the CTV and and then. Uh, so we watched a lot of Bruins games and Patriots games, which is how I became a Patriots fan and a Red Sox fan. Okay. And we just saw a lot of New England sports. We had a lot of New England television. And But somehow, uh, I ended up wanting to watch the Oilers more than the Bruins. I don't know how that happened exactly. <laughs> just like I said, they were just in your face all the time playing that, playing that style of hockey and always on the news. There was always something to talk about with them. There you go. And also in 1988 and 1990, the Oilers beat the Bruins in the Stanley Cup final those two years. So at least you had a if, if there were any Bruins fans around you, you could at least have the bragging rights there as well. I have a friend who's a who's a huge Bruins fan. And I know a few of them. We do have a lot of Bruins fans on in our area. And like you said, Canadians fans. Uh, there's really I know a few people who like other teams, but those are really the big ones. I yeah. grew up in a house where my brother is a big Detroit Red Wings fan. Okay. He likes Stevie Eiserman. And then my sister was a Leafs fan. Mm-hmm. So, And my father was a Habs fan. So okay. we were kind of Everyone, all messed up. Everyone's got their own team. You know, I live in a province also where we don't have an NHL team. So, I mean, Edmonton geographically is the closest team to Saskatoon. And I'll be driving there tomorrow morning to go to the game tomorrow night. But... Uh, if you go around the city, it seems like anyone over the age of 50 that's a hockey fan cheers for an original six team. <laughs> and then as you get to talking to hockey fans that are in their 20s or teens or, or maybe even into their 30s, there's a lot of Penguins fans, which I think is a result of Sidney Crosby. But also Edmonton and Calgary would probably be two of the most popular teams here. I probably see more Oilers and Flames stuff around town than anything else. So just the fact that it's with within a, a five-hour drive to Edmonton, seven-hour drive to Calgary, you can you can see why the the, the proximity would would probably make uh, fans here cheer for those teams. But like I said, I was just wondering out in Nova Scotia because. The closer teams to you are on the East Coast. I, I was interested to find out sort of why the Oilers uh, were a team you gravitated towards. But that is interesting that the the, the 80s Oilers had an impact on you. And I'm guessing uh, Wayne Gretzky would have been one of your favorite players back then. But I'll just ask you anyway, who were a couple of your favorite players as a kid? Well, again, I feel like I'm gonna, I was thinking, geez, who can I pull out of the woodwork and sound really cool? But, you know, Wayne Gretzky was my favorite player. And, and it was... Uh, it was kind of a, a a feud at the time. I remember very specifically my next door neighbor actually was an old uh, radio broadcaster, and he used to actually do play by play for the Leafs on the radio at one point. Oh, nice! And so he he was a little older than us, obviously, and he uh, but he was a big Mario Lemieux fan and telling us why Mario Lemieux was so much better than Wayne Gretzky <laughs> all the time. Now. Uh, it wasn't long before I started to appreciate Mario Lemieux as a player. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, I grew up on Cole Harbor. I grew up in Sidney Crosby community. Like he mm-hmm. lives, he grew up a street away from me. I could practically throw a rock at his house from my house. Oh, wow. And, uh, he, but I loved the Penguins well before he even went there. So it was actually just a bonus that he ended up being at the Penguins. Whereas, like you said, a lot of people turned to the Penguins for him. 
Yeah. But for me, I had all these great Oilers players. And and because of them, I started to appreciate other players around the league that were similar to them. So I, I know it's going to be blasphemous, but I, you know, I liked Mary Lemieux, but I also started to I don't think it's blasphemous like, at all. I mean, I, 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 I believe in appreciating the great players. I have a Mary Lemieux jersey in my closet as well as many Wayne Gretzky jerseys. I mean, I'm sure you can tell by the name of my podcast that Wayne Gretzky was my hero as a childhood sure. hero as well and still is to this day. But, I mean, <coughs> Gretzky and, and Lemieux were, were friends too. I mean, they played on the 87 Canada Cup team together. Uh, these two are probably the, the two greatest players that Canada has ever produced. I, I don't think it's blasphemy to cheer for both players, although there might be a rivalry because it seems like a lot of Penguins fans, because McDavid did take the crown from Crosby as the best player in the world, that they're, that seems to be a fan base that's a little less likely to to praise McDavid over anything. But I, I'm a fan of Crosby and I'm an uh, even bigger fan of McDavid. So I don't think that it's a, a big deal to cheer for both players at all. And there's there's others. I'm afraid to say it. I loved Mike Medano. Um, just uh, he was him. an Oilers killer. Uh, I know. <laughs> but the thing is, the thing is, I would have loved to have have had him on the Oilers. Oh, uh, absolutely. That guy. I mean, the the speed of that guy and the wrist shot. Just he's the type of guy that you you wished was on your team, but you dreaded facing in the playoffs. Like I remember being a kid and watching those series in the late nineties and early two thousands. And it always seemed to be Medano. That was just the one that just finished off the Oilers. And I'm sure flames fans are feeling very similar right now to how, uh, McDavid and dry will just tear them up every time they have to play us. So <laughs> uh, it's nice to be on the, the right side of that this time. Um, and and just the the era of hockey around that, like uh, like so, I started watching the Oilers, uh, but as I I saw who the Oilers played, I got to know more of the other teams, and and when I really started to be able to pay attention to what like really started to figure it out and try things at practice, right, uh, is is probably the last two cups, more like the '88 cup and then the '90 cup. I remember the other ones. But I didn't soak it all in as much. I really started to absorb a lot more in the, as I got a little bit older. That makes sense. Um, and so so we're talking like the 87 Canada Cup was probably my first taste of like, wow, this is like, this is just, I'm starting to realize that this hockey is sort of different than other hockey. And then you have, you know, the 88 Cup and the 90 Cup and the entire, I would say the entire 93 Stanley Cup playoffs for whatever reason, just happens to be my favorite playoff year of all time. Just all the storylines and things that happened with but, the Habs having the ten overtime wins in the playoffs yeah. and Gretzky leading the the Kings to their first ever final, beating the the Leafs in the the conference <laughs> final. Not, yeah, there was just a lot of things there, and yeah. and the other part is so you had you had Gretzky win the cup, uh, and then the '87 Canada Cup, and then you had. The Oilers win the cup again in 90, so I was okay with that, even though it wasn't with Gretzky. And then I started to love Mary Lemieux, so then he won the cup the next years, and that's okay. And then you had Gretzky back in the final in 93, so that was fun. You had a pretty strong a run the there ex- from like 97 to 93, or from 87 to 93. You had a pretty 
like, strong run of year after year uh, playoff enjoyment there. And then a lot of ex-Oilers won in 94. With like, the Rangers, yeah. And then my brother, his wings won in 97, 98. Like, I had a stretch there where I was just really excited for most of the winners. And, and uh, like, I just – there was just not a time where I didn't have a lot to be excited about in hockey. It was just a great time. I just remember being very happy watching these games. And, and the outcome always – I was always excited by the outcome. And I started to appreciate, like I said, other teams around the league. So I was able to enjoy more games than just Oilers games. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so now I, like, watch all the games at this stage, especially when the Oilers were, were doing so terribly. And now the league is expanded and, and there's such parity in the league that uh, – I, me and my brother always say to people like you need to have more than one favorite team because your team's never going to win anything <laughs> Just, you have to get it through your head that your team's not winning so you need to have three or four chances at it and find someone else to watch when your team isn't out because the chances of your, your team actually winning everything is is too astronomical fair enough although hopefully we are going to get to see our team win <laughs> our oh, first championship so. in more than three decades this year um and that kind of ties in. I, I wanted to also ask you, have you ever been out to Edmonton for a game? And if so, what do you remember about your first time watching the Oilers live? Well, I haven't been to an Oilers game. Okay. I, I hate to say it, but I've had some opportunity to. Um, I, I've have a, I have a number of people. I, I think I'm the only carpenter in Nova Scotia who's never worked to stand out west. Oh. So I have, <laughs> I have all... I have all these friends that have fathers there or they know people and they say, oh, I got tickets to a box tonight. You go, you can come in my box or use my box. All you have to do is get to Edmonton. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, thanks for the five hours notice and the few thousand dollars I need to save. Wayne like, flight, yeah. It, that's happened to me a number of times where it's like, if only I could just hop on a plane right now. I could be in exactly. a skybox. But I, it's never actually come to fruition. But I have been to games. In, I have been to several games in montreal okay that's always been fun and and the I, I guess montreal would be geographically the closest nhl city to you i've i happened to go there for other reasons and been able to get tickets um while i was in town so it was kind of nice it's not like i just made a special trip to go to montreal to see a game there like some people have nice. um but but i have been in the city and and been to I've been to a few games now. My brother went to a, a game in the Coliseum. Uh, I have been in the Coliseum, but there was no ice in at the time. It was the summertime. So I got to walk around the old Quebec rink. But uh, but my brother actually watched Eric Lindros play in there as a flyer. Oh, that would have been an interesting <laughs> one. I'm guessing he was booed almost every time he touched the puck. Yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> it was funny. Well, I hope that someday you're able to make it out to Edmonton. I'll tell you, Rogers Place is a beautiful state-of-the-art arena. I, I think I've been about 11 or 12 times now, and I try to go to about four a year, so I'm hoping to uh, make it out to a few more. And I went to my first-ever playoff game last uh, spring as well, that game one loss to the Kings that we talked about. So right. I'll, I'll hopefully be back. And, I mean, that was one of the more expensive hockey tickets I've I've ever purchased. I think the only one that exceeded that ever was the 2016 heritage classic in Winnipeg. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an awesome experience getting to watch the Oilers live and can't wait to be there tomorrow night. Uh, I will ask you though, what is your favorite memory of watching the Oilers? I, I don't know why this happens, but I always gravitate 
to the Essatican Game 7 overtime winner in the Battle of Alberta playoff round one. Was that 1991, I believe? It was. I, I don't know why that game just stands out to me. I remember the goal like I was there. And it's just it, the fact that it was Essatican in, I don't know why that just brought me so much satisfaction, almost like it was like an extra little oomph to them. I, I just really liked that series, the whole series and the game. And, and then the way it ended, I just, I don't know why. It's just one of my favorite memories of Oilers hockey. Uh, I mean, beating your arch rival is a is probably a leading cause, I'm guessing, for the reason. But also, they, <laughs> I think people forget the Oilers fell behind three nothing in that game, and they yeah. rallied to tie at Esetikinen on his overtime winner. That was actually to complete the hat trick. So it was a hat trick goal and a series winning overtime goal. And if you think about this, what we saw this past spring. Connor McDavid is now in a pretty exclusive group of players. Uh, those being, of course, Wayne Gretzky in 1988, Esatikin in 1991, and now Connor McDavid in 2022. Oilers players that have scored a series-winning overtime goal in the Saddle Dome. So it's a uh, it's a pretty great <laughs> it's a pretty great list to be on. And uh, who, who knows? Maybe we'll get another one of those uh, in about six months from now. I want people to know two things. I knew the question, but he didn't know my answer, folks. He was just pulling all that information right off the top of his head. That wasn't planned. This is a smart guy that knows his hockey. Uh, and number two, the the, the DVD collection uh, that they used, had for some teams, they put it a few years ago, like the top 10 Oilers games, the top 10 Habs games. Yeah, that I have were, that DVD collection. That game seven is on it. Yeah, it is one of the, the considered one of the top, top 10 games in Oilers history. I think it came out somewhere around 2009, 2008. It was right around the Oilers' 30th anniversary. I, I can remember when that DVD collection was released because I I got it for Christmas. And I, I mean, DVDs themselves kind of date them, date, <laughs> right. date themselves at this point. Like, <laughs> when, 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 when was the last time anyone bought or received a DVD, right? Jeez. Uh, um, I still have VHS tapes in my, oh, yeah. in my closet. At, oh. my, at my parents' house, they still have uh, our VHSs from when I was a kid, too. But, um, you know, yeah. I honestly, those tapes might have disintegrated by now if we open the case, you know? <laughs> oh, don't say that. Yeah, hopefully people were smart enough to go to Costco and get them transferred over onto DVDs. I, I can remember my parents doing that for our family home videos for like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. So that's, but now, like now we said, the DVDs are almost going instinct. So you basically have to have like a file on your computer or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about your podcast and YouTube channel now. How long have you been doing suspension recommendations and how did you decide to start making these videos in the first place? I had to look up when I started my YouTube channel. It was it was only a year and a half ago. Uh, at the end of April 2021 was my YouTube channel. Um, but I had a blog before that. I used to put it in article form. Um and then the idea of doing a video was something I always had in mind where I I wish I could just show the people what I'm talking about instead of instead of just describing it in words because it became bulky and you're I'm saying some pretty technical things. Um, so the idea of putting it out on YouTube and 
describing it like the Department of Player Safety does. I just found that to be a useful tool to help people maybe picture more what I'm talking about when I'm when I'm talking about it. Um, I don't know how it evolved to to what it is now, but I, I was mystified. What started it off for me was when Zdeno Chara turnbuckled Max Pacioretty, and I just couldn't believe the reaction to it, like the divide that that caused. I just, I, I can't believe how people see that other, it wasn't even just that people were saying it wasn't dirty. Some people were saying it wasn't even a penalty. And it just blew my mind that people could could have that. Like, you can argue maybe whether, did he know where he was? Did he mean to smash his head into the turnbuckle? But the way people were vehemently saying, oh, he shouldn't have even been in the box for that. And they, they were fully genuine. And it just blew my mind that that happened. And it was entertaining to to hear the people talk about it. And I thought, right. well, I have some, I, I, is, I was like, is this for real? Let's put it out to somewhere else, like where we can get other opinions. And, and then I thought, well, if like, I want to hear what as many of my friends say about this as possible. And then I thought, well, why don't I just put it out to the world and see what they say? And that's kind of where it started. So I didn't really know exactly how I was going to do that, but but it was I'm glad I did because the the takes that like those were people I know and they were ridiculous takes. You should see these people that like from all facets of the earth that, yeah. that the things that they come up with is it's very entertaining and and a lot of it is very valuable. It's uh, there's a lot of people that look at things a different way than I would, of course. Mm-hmm. And the more people that you can have different views from, the more kind of educated my opinion becomes of things so i thought i thought it grew it started as a way for me to amuse myself and it and it grew into a way for me to to sort of educate myself and then with my expertise in the in the universe of hockey checking and the philosophies of development player development in hockey canada and hockey nova scotia i could sort of contribute that to the conversation and not so much sway people to to my way, but maybe develop their way of thinking the way that mine was developed by some of these opinions that I was reading. That I was like, huh, I never really looked at it that way before, and it's just evolved into this community uh, where people seek out those opinions and and they know that my place is sort of a central location where they can find that, and and it's be, it's become a lot of fun. I've learned a lot, and it's it's really helped me frame the way I shape my arguments of, of, in terms of where I think we need to go with with uh, checking and player development. Well, that's awesome, man. It's it sounds like it's a a passion project for you, and also one that uh, you know you're able to gain your own uh, wisdom from of, of learning from other people as well as providing your own take to to them as well. Would you say that? The hit you described there from Chara, is that the most dangerous play that you've ever reviewed or looked at? Or is there one or two other ones that come to mind that were just as vicious or maybe even more? <laughs> There's, It's a shame. There's so many and the danger involved in each one is so different that it's really hard to answer that question. Um, especially if you're trying to figure out whether or not they did it on purpose. And yeah. The word... The word intent is just such a gray area for me. For instance, this uh, a great example is that Kuznetsov slash across somebody's neck there the other day. I can't remember who he slashed. Um, 
but he got a high sticking penalty, two minutes, and then I think he got a one game suspension. I think. Um, but he literally took a two hand swing and, and hit this person in in the face with a stick, and he told the Department of Player Safety, "Oh, I didn't mean to get him that high." <laughs> and, and so people are using that and saying, "Well, he didn't mean to get him that high." And I'm looking at it going, "Well, look, he 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 hit him in the face." You're going to argue, no, he, he actually hit him in the neck. It didn't hit him in the face. And he was probably well, we still have to be in control check. of our stick, right? I mean. So, so I'm sitting there. Why are we arguing over those inches between your, like, did he look like he was trying to hit him in the shin pad? No. Well, then that's a problem, right? Like, what are we, what are we looking for here? What, what is an acceptable place to swing? Like you said, you have to be in control of your stick. Exactly. I mean, if I high stick a guy and cut, cut his lip open and he bleeds and I say, Oh, I didn't mean to do it. it, It's what are the refs going to say? Oh, it's okay. It's not a four minute penalty because he didn't mean to do it. I mean, it's more about what the result is than the intent. I would say like, like what to like people who, uh, there's these cross checks and they always say, oh, I tried to get him in the shoulder and it rode up into his head. Well, give me one good reason why you're supposed to cross check anyone in the shoulder in the first place. Even the checks that go uh, shoulder to chest and ride up into the jaw or into the head. I mean, I remember the the hit that uh, took Dylan Holloway out of the lineup for a week. You know, looking at that hit, I mean, it was a, it was a dangerous pass that set him in position to get hit like that in the first place. But at first glance, when I didn't get to see it in extra slow motion, it looked like it was a head hit. Yes, it did. That's the trouble. The The rules, the way the rule book is set up, it's almost impossible for officials to call those properly in real time. How it, do you think that players like um, Scott Stevens or... Uh, even maybe Chris Prong or Younger in his career or players from the 90s who who were known for uh, some pretty vicious hits. How do you think they would have adjusted to playing in the modern NHL? I just did a video not that long ago uh, declaring that I think Scott Stevens would do just fine really? in this NHL. And the reason I say that is because he was playing within the parameters of the game at that time. At the time. And there's some people that are just crazy reckless, but he was very good at angling and timing things. Just at the time, you were able to explode on contact. You were able to kind of lift your forearm up and protect yourself. That's the way you were taught to hit. But I think someone who's who's as good a skater and an angler and a timer as him would thrive in the NHL I would want to create. And you can still have large, massive, thunderous contact but just he would stay lower and he wouldn't he wouldn't push in as much. Yeah. Whereas someone like uh, someone like Jacob Truba, who is of this era and who does know the rules and grew up within those parameters, likes to raise his hands and explode up and into contact. And you don't know how many times I hear people say, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to explode and and lunge. You have to have sort of an upward motion into the check. And. That's just not true. Like, you you don't need to do that to have a proper good hit. As Lubushkin showed us with Dylan Holloway, there was absolutely no shift in his posture through that 
process. He was just down and he glided into Holloway. And the way I always look at it is you just put yourself in a position where players kind of just hit themselves by running into you. And you're yeah. just the, the mechanism for them going down. Fusion, do anything extra. And when you start to get into the idea of picking your stick up in two hands and pulling your arms back and then throwing them into the hit, or when you're when you're looking to straighten your legs and sort of launch into the hit, that's when you're getting into the the dangerous hitting things that I talk about versus your process of checking. No, that that makes sense. And uh, you know, just to go back to the 2006 Oilers Cup run. Yes. One of the one of the turning points in their second round series against the San Jose Sharks were was when Rafi Torres took Milan McCulloch's head off in I think game three. I want to no, it might have been game two actually. And you know that hit by today's standards would result in a major suspension. But sixteen years ago. That was still considered a legal hit, and it allowed the Oilers. I mean, it was a huge boost for the team, and it allowed them to get back in the series. Torres was a player who I was a big fan of at that time, but throughout the rest of his career, he had a hard time getting that lesson through his head, and was consistently uh, getting suspended for headshots. <laughs> I, I I'm just curious to you, going back to then. What did you think of that hit at the time, or did you like because it was a legal hit? Uh, did you have any problem with it, or, or going back now, did you say you know it was a dangerous, uh, it was a dangerous check that shouldn't have uh, been allowed in the game even back then? Well, I the rules of the NHL are so different <laughs> than anywhere else in the known universe, and at the time I didn't really know that. The NHL very clearly in their charging video says you know you're allowed to leave your feet as long as you go sideways instead of up like to me that makes absolutely zero sense but but that's what the rule book was at the time and you see these these hits and and you're sitting there wanting them to happen as a fan obviously you're very excited i don't care how they get hit or who gets hit with what i just want to i just want to see someone get smashed (laughs) and so it's it's just one of those big hits and and because it happened for someone on your team you're very very excited about it and you couldn't care less whether it was legal or not you know at the time that's the way i felt i would look at it probably very differently now uh but but at the time that's just what it was and the way the league looked at head contact by then like they were still at that time debating whether they even had a head contact problem whereas the IIHF had already had a head contact rule in place for, for six years at the time, or and they had been looking at this problem since the 96-97 season. They had these think tanks and these discussion groups. They were talking about head contact and whether they even need to have a head contact rule for for almost 15 years before Rule 48 came into effect. So uh, I think two, the NHL is pretty slow to adapt to this. I mean, like, we forget that it wasn't that long ago that there was still a player in the league who wasn't wearing a helmet even. Craig McTavish, of course, being the final player in NHL history to play without a helmet. I, I believe he retired in 1996. Yes. But, but I mean, go watch a game from the 80s, and by then, most of the players had helmets on, but you'd see a few players. I mean, even on the Oilers, there were several. I think uh, Dave Lumley, uh, Dave Semenko, Craig McTavish. There was a handful of guys who didn't wear a helmet still. Go back even further to the 70s, it seemed like it was almost 50-50 split. And then by the 60s, you rarely saw anyone 
with a helmet at that time. So it took them a while just to even figure out that, oh, I guess we should be protecting our head, playing this extremely <laughs> fast physical game. And then once they did decide to put the helmets on, they still allowed you to throw vicious <laughs> hits at the head until I, I'm not even sure what your uh, – they outlawed um, hits to the head in, in the NHL, maybe about 2011, 2012, I'm thinking. It was 20, 2011, and they didn't outlaw all hits to the head, just blindside hits. Hmm. That was the only thing that, and then the, the Rule 48 has modified two or three times because it's so confusing. They had to adjust it a few times to try and include all hits. Uh, but, but yeah, like you said, there will be people today that will still argue that helmets have made the game more dangerous because people don't <laughs> respect them. the same thing they'll say when, when at some point they go to full cages, they've done that in junior and people are saying, oh, that's made the game more dangerous going to full cages. And right. so with the fighting thing, I always laugh when people use the argument, well, the players want it in. And if the players say they want it in, that's what we need to listen to. The players know best. And I do always say, well, if it was up to the players, no one would have a helmet on today. So yeah. do we really well, think that we always – do they always know what's best for themselves? Probably not. What's your thought on players having to fight after throwing a big clean hit? Like let's take last night, for example. Marcus Niemelainen uh, had Jared McCarron lined up. And he dodged the check at the last second as yeah. uh, Niemelainen went lunging forward. And he was jumped by two guys after that and had to be separated by some of his teammates and the officials. Do you think it's necessary or do you like the fact that players seemingly have to always fight now after throwing even a clean body check? I look back to a hit. Mark Messier cleaned Mike Medano at the blue line. Mike Medano was knocked out cold. And not one person did anything about it because that's just what happened. I, you just got hit hard and you moved on with your life. It's the open ice hits, right? That's, that's what seems to really cause it, especially if it's a star player. I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago in Edmonton, uh, Nathan McKinnon um, had skated over the blue line and he curled back looking for a pass and he just turned right into Zach Cassian, who leveled him. And I mean, instantly, whoever the whoever the closest teammate had to basically drop the gloves with Cassian, whether he was a, a tough guy or not. And it seems like that's sort of the the standard. I mean, I'll even say if if someone hit McDavid really hard, I would want someone to at least go up and confront the guy. I'm not saying that they have to drop the gloves, but at least you know protect your star player. But I, I'm just curious your take on, you know, always having to fight every single time, even if it's a, a third or fourth liner who gets lit up. I think it's kind of stupid. I, I do, because to me, the people argue for NHL fighting because it keeps the game safer and stops players from doing things dirty. Well, then why, when someone does something clean, do we still fight them anyway? Players are always on record saying, I don't care if the hit was clean or dirty. I saw my go down, guy go down. I'm doing something about it. The NHL and, doesn't want to promote it anymore, though. Well, they don't. They don't. But but players say that, and they use that as a reason to do it. And so I always get asked, do you even want hitting in hockey? You'd suspend that, or you'd want to penalize that? Well, if if you don't think it's worth the penalty, why is it worth jumping somebody over? That's the way I, I see it. 
Who doesn't yeah. want hit, who doesn't want hitting in hockey more? Me, who wants to penalize guys who do things dirty and let them off when they do things clean, or people who are going to jump people whether they do things clean or dirty, no matter what. That's what I don't get. Yeah, and you know, I remember when I was going to sports journalism school in Toronto about five years ago, one of our instructors told us that um, any writers who work for NHL.com, they're not allowed to include fights in their stories. So yeah. if you're so if you're publishing a story about a, a game that happened last night and there was a huge brawl, uh, three three four guys got involved with it, that that can't even be mentioned in your story. Now, if you're a beat writer for the Oilers or the Flames or whoever, of course you're going to have it. Like, can you imagine trying to write the game recap for the Battle of Alberta in January 2020 and not include the goalie fight between Mike Smith and Cam Talbot? I mean, that's part of the story. That That is a huge moment of the game, how both goaltenders were ejected from the game and both backups had to come in. How do you finish writing your story when you can't inc include this very important aspect that happened in the game. So I think that even though the NHL doesn't want to promote it, it's still a part of the game. We might see fighting continue to decrease. I mean, I, I think some of the junior leagues have a rule now that you're not allowed to exceed a certain number of fights in a year or it's a suspension. Yes. I don't know if that's just the OHL or if... Uh, other leagues have have adopted that as well, but I remember hearing it was something like if you went over, is it three or five fights that it's a ten game suspension? Yeah, it's something like that. And if you have so many, uh, again, then it's the year. I don't know exactly the number, but it's it's not high. That's for sure. I mean, go back thirty years. How many players willing to fight were on any given junior team, right? Yeah, when I played junior, you could have uh, two fights in the same game, and uh, you wouldn't get kicked out until your second fight. And then they switched it midway through my career to have one fight, and so you could you could fight every game and be fine, not be suspended or anything. I didn't and even know you played that, you junior. You fight twice a game and not be suspended. All right, I want to get your take on last night's game now. So the Edmonton Oilers extended their winning streak to five games with a thrilling 7-4 victory over the Nashville Predators at Rogers Place. And it was very reminiscent of the type of hockey that the Oilers played during the 1980s. Leon Dreisaitl recorded his fifth career five-point game and Connor McDavid tallied his fourth four-point game of the season already. Josh, McDavid and Dreisaitl currently rank first and second in NHL scoring and they are both averaging more than two points per game. What can you say about the incredible start to the season for the dynamic duo? Well, it's just unbelievable. Don't don't blink. Appreciate these moments while they're here because the years only last so long. They're they're just so fun to watch. There's just nothing they can't do. Uh, Drysaddle is the the best passer in the game, especially on the backhand, and that became on display again last night with these incredible backhand passes through these impossible seams. And he he's not just a product of McDavid. He's not just because he plays on McDavid's line. He can carry play all by himself. And to have two people who can carry the play that well and do so many things and have a couple of the weapons around them, this is just it's just incredible to watch what they can do with these players around them. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, McDavid and Dreisaitl are undoubtedly the most dominant offensive duo the game has seen since Mario Lemieux and Yarmer Yager in the mid-90s. I mean, McDavid has 22 points and Dreisaitl has 21 points in just 10 games, which is remarkable, especially in this era. And last night, McDavid and Dreisaitl became only the sixth and seventh players in NHL history to record 20 or more points in their first 10 games in back-to-back seasons. So it's been year-over-year dominance for McDavid and Dreisaitl. I mean, uh, McDavid has five 100-point seasons, three 40-goal seasons, four Art Ross trophies as scoring champion. Dreisaitl has three 100-point seasons, two 50-goal seasons, and an Art Ross trophy as well. And look, McDavid has been the best player in the NHL for at least the past five years, but I think the gap between McDavid and Dreisaitl is actually smaller than the gap between Dreisaitl and the next best player in the league. Uh, And as far as uh, the time we're recording this podcast, McDavid is on pace for 180 points this season. Dreisaitl is on pace for 172. And while it would be incredible if they could continue to put up two points per game for the rest of the season, it's extremely unlikely that they'll hit those totals. But what kind of numbers could you actually see McDavid and Dreisaitl finishing with this season? I can see McDavid at 140. That's what Um, I actually had for him, too. Okay. Um, I did my season preview podcast. Uh, the episode before this one, and that was what I had McDavid hitting was 140 this year. <laughs> the the interesting thing for me will be, I'm pretty sure he'll get around 140. It, it will just be a matter of whether he hits the 50 goal mark or not, um, which I really never thought about before this year, but I, I saw a few other people talking about it. It's not something I would have really thought about. You just sort of assume he's <laughs> he, he's been there because he's got so many points, you just kind of forget. Um, if he could up his goal total the same way, of course, Wayne Gretzky did uh, yeah. a few years in his career, that would be an exciting thing to see. Um, Dreisaitl, I think he'll end up with uh, somewhere between 120 and 130 is definitely a reasonable thing. The only reason I have him slightly lower um, is because I just feel like the I feel like he's going to go through a spell where he he has an injury or something. He just seems to be a more stubborn player, a more aggravated player. I don't know what it is about him. Um, I know McDavid's been technically probably hurt more in a way, but um, I just think Drysdale gets those nagging injuries that sort of keep you uh, keep you not a hundred percent for for longer periods of time while you're still playing, as opposed to being fully injured and out for long stretches of time. So I think that might might catch up on him, and he might just need a, a few games to just sort of hide and hide in the shadows a little bit and not be that big player. But I don't think McDavid is capable of that. I think he'll always just be go go go. So I think that will that will create a discrepancy in their point totals. Yeah, and I mean looking at the two of them. It's like you said, Dreisaitl is the best passer in the league, but McDavid is the best at generating offensive chances. He creates more chances for himself than anyone else in the league. You look at last night, the goal he scored. There's a slight turnover at center ice. He picks up the puck at the red line, skates in on a two-on-one. He's coming so fast, the defenseman has to make a a split-second decision what to do. He, He tries to stay low and take away the pass, but because McDavid can hit his target without even looking. He's just able to fake the the pass across and put it five hole with such velocity that the goaltender barely moved. 
you you see this shooting mentality that he's starting to really uh, take on this year, and he he seems to be hunting for these goals. And I think that 140 points is where he's going to end up. Dry Seidel, I see finishing somewhere around 125, which you know for for Connor getting 140 points, he'd be only the tenth player in NHL history to reach that mark. And even 125 for Dry that would still be one of the best offensive seasons in the past quarter century. But I think. What's perhaps more impressive than anything is that I think they're both going to score 50 goals this season. Dreisaitl's already scored 50 goals twice before, so it's not that big of a reach for him to do it again, especially while he's still in the prime of his career. But with 11 goals in the first 10 games this season, I think McDavid is a lock to score 50 goals for the first time. I mean, he's he's on pace for 90 right now, which has only ever been done by Wayne Gretzky in 1981-82. So I don't think we're going to see that happen anytime soon. <laughs> but could he? But will he score 50? Yes. And could he even hit 60? I think so. Yeah. Why not? I mean, the guy can seem to do everything right now, and he's he's riding hot. You might as well just keep going and see what happens. Did you see that interview with Leon Dreisaitl and Elliot Friedman that they showed during a, an intermission maybe a week or two ago? It, it was filmed back in August when they were doing their um, their NHL European tour. And Dreisaitl said, you know, well, Lee, Friedman asked him, when you and Connor talk, what, what kind of stuff do you talk about? Do you talk about hockey-related stuff or is it just all off-ice things? And he said, oh, yeah, we talk about hockey all the time. And Leon said, I, I tell him that he could score 60 goals every year. And and Connor kind of said, yeah, 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 I know. But he's like, he's, I'm a, but he's like, I'm a pat, but he's a pass first guy, right? Much like Wayne Gretzky. But even, right. though, but even though both guys are playmakers first and foremost, you know, they're, they both have uh, the goal scoring ability as well. I mean, Wayne Gretzky, obviously the single season and all time goals leader, Connor McDavid. I don't know if people necessarily think of him as a top five goal scorer in the league, but he absolutely is. I mean, he's on a stretch of five straight 30 goal seasons, or I should actually make that six straight 30 goal seasons. The only season he hasn't done it was his rookie year. And the only other player in the league who has scored six straight 30 goal seasons is Austin Matthews. And McDavid also finished second in the league in goals two years ago. And last year, you know, he scored a career high 44 and he was on pace or sorry. And he, um, and he had over 300 shots for the first time in his career too. So you can see that he's starting to shoot the puck more this season. It seems like he's really taking off as a goal scorer, but he's been doing it for years. This is just a new level for him. He's such a casual point getter. Like, like do you, he do you remember be... the game against Carolina? Not, not to cut you off, but he had a, a goal and three assists and it, it seemed like the quietest four point night <laughs> that I've ever seen. <laughs> That's right. And you just think about points with him. For some reason, it's not about goals or assists with him. It's just about how many points can he rack up. You don't really care which form they come in. Right. So you kind of forget that a lot of those points are goals too. I mean, he he has we're, – we're 10 games into the season. He already has four four-point games. Uh, I looked this up recently. His career high for four-point games was uh, during the, the second pandemic shortened year in 2020-21. He had seven that year. Well – we're just about uh, 10 games into an 82 game season. So ha- halfway to a quarter of the season. And he's, and he's already like a- approaching the, the halfway total of his career best. I mean, could, could he get over 10, four point games this year? Could he get 15? A friend of mine, uh, Brian Swain, who's been on this podcast 
five times before. He uh, found a stat for me that Mario Lemieux actually holds the NHL record for most four-point games in a season with 24. And I'm just thinking the way McDavid's playing right now, it wouldn't shock me if he got close to 20. I mean, he he's just able to have three or four points seemingly every other game. There was a game when when the whole uh, Matthews dry title debate was raging last year. Yeah. Um, and it, there was a couple of things that struck me. Some of them were saying uh, uh, dry wouldn't be anything if he didn't have McDavid on his line. If only Matthews had a McDavid. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, he's supposed to be your McDavid. Like yeah. there should like he, he shouldn't be in the conversation with Drysdale and shouldn't need a McDavid to drive him if he's your Connor McDavid. But but the other thing about it was I, I couldn't believe there was a game I think it was last year where Connor McDavid had four points and nobody noticed because Drysdale had five points. I think which, was, which happened back. again last night too. Like like nobody even knew Connor McDavid had anything because Drysaddle was the dominant force of that game. And there are a lot of times where, where Drysaddle is the dominant player, even with the McDavid on the ice, and especially when he's not on the ice. So well, it's like what I said, I think the gap between McDavid and Drysaddle is actually smaller than the gap between, say, Drysaddle and Kale McCarr or Austin Matthews or Nathan McKinnon or whoever else uh, people think is the third best player in the league. And Drysaddle typically is cons- is a consensus top five player but you see he's third on some people's lists or fourth on others and and I, i'll admit i come at this from a biased perspective but i truly believe dry is the second best player in the nhl i mean just look at over the last six or seven years other than mcdavid he dominates offensively more than anyone he can win face-offs he's got a huge body he's the guy that you send out there in a five-on-three penalty kill situation he played through a high ankle sprain in the playoffs last year and had an NHL record five consecutive three-point games. I mean, this guy is an absolute force out there. We're we're very lucky to watch these players play night in, night out. It's like Gretzky and Messier 2.0. And, you know, <laughs> there's most NHL teams have never had a player as great as Connor McDavid. And even if he wins a Stanley Cup here, which I believe he will, and goes on to play 20 years as an Oiler, he's still almost certainly only going to be considered the second best player in Oilers history. (laughs) When you put it that way, that is absolutely bananas, isn't it? I mean, some teams have just been so fortunate. The Pittsburgh Penguins would be another one. They've had the likes of Mario Lemieux, Yarmer Yager, Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, the Oilers. I mean... They have seven Hall of Fame players from the 80s. Right now, they have McDavid and Dreisaitl. There are some franchises that have never come close to that. And I'm not just even trying to pick on the Toronto Maple Leafs right now, even though I, I'm not a fan of them at all. But they, <laughs> that that franchise has been around for, this is their 106th season. If you were to go look at the top 10 players in Leafs history and compare it to the top 10 players in Oilers history, the Oilers list is significantly better. Yeah. That's and they've only been around for just over 40 years. It's it's incredible to think about. That this franchise has been blessed with so much talent over the years. High-end talent. And when you think about the, the talented players that have been in, in the league over the years, not even just like... 
not even just right now or even in our history, but in the history of the entire league, we have grown up in an era where we've seen the best players of like literally all time. And a couple of them have happened to end up on the same team. It's, it's not even just era to era. Like there's some absolutely great names that I'll never understand the way the game was played and how they compared because it was just too far before my time. Mm -hmm. But even the ones in the, the 50s and the 60s that that we hear about and we see some highlights of and things, they'll just, I know the game has evolved, but the, the players that we see, the, the sheer number of quality players that we've seen in our franchise compared to other franchises is just, it's just sick. And we yeah. happen to have seen them in our time because that's when the franchise was, was exi- is existing. I think, one of the best ways to judge players from different eras is how much did they dominate their their individual time when they were in the league. So if you're going to compare Gordie Howe in the 50s to Wayne Gretzky in the 80s or even Bobby Orr in the 70s, Mario Lemieux in the 90s, Sidney uh, Crosby in the 2000s, early 2010s, Connor McDavid right now, look at them compared to their peers, right? And... Uh, Two seasons ago, when McDavid had that incredible season during the pandemic year where where he had 105 points in 56 games, he won the scoring title by 21 points. That was the widest margin of victory in the scoring race since Wayne Gretzky won in 1991, 30 years earlier, by 32 points. So, I mean, 21 points ahead of the next best player in the league, who was by no coincidence, Leon Dreisaitl, you know, (laughs) and the next best player after that, who finished third was Brad Marchand. He had, I I believe he finished with 69 points. Well, Connor McDavid finished with 70 assists that year. So, so (laughs) McDavid, McDavid had more assists than anyone else in the league had points except for one of his teammates. (laughs) That's just disgusting, really. I mean, I, I, I like that the league is trending to uh, towards higher point totals in general again. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about it in 2014-15, the year before McDavid came into the NHL. Jamie Benn won the Art Ross Trophy with 87 points. Yeah. Which is, I think, an all-time low since the league expanded to 82 games. And since then, we've seen just a steady climb. Like, it's been... It hasn't been a drastic climb, but it's been steadily on the rise to the point where this year Connor McDavid won the or last year I should say McDavid won the scoring title with 123 points, and the the two guys who were the runner-ups, uh, Johnny Goudreau and uh, Jonathan Huberdeau, each finished in sec- tied for second with 115. Like we're seeing scoring up around the league, but Edmonton's top-end players are just better than the other pl- teams around the league's top-end players. For sure. And I think when you look at it, we're seeing a rotation of players in the the spots, say three through seven or whatever. But we're consistently seeing those two at the top of the table every year. Absolutely. And, you know, because last night's game was an 80s style high scoring affair, the numbers weren't going to be as great for the goaltenders. Now, Jack Campbell still stopped 20 or 19 out of 23 shots 
for a subpar 826 save percentage, but he picked up the win, and that's the only thing that matters. Campbell is now 5-2-0 to start the season, while Stuart Skinner sits at 2-1-0. However, Skinner's goals against average and save percentage are much better, despite a smaller sample size. Uh, Josh, do you think the starter's job is up for grabs in Edmonton right now, or is Campbell still the starter and Skinner the backup? Well, I I think in order for the team to be in a healthy place, I think the starter's job should always be up for grabs when you really think about it. Um, if if Stuart Skinner comes in and, and plays horribly, uh, that's a big problem when Campbell's having an off time. Uh, but if you can constantly keep players going, it's it's a bit of that healthy competition that will that will push everybody forward. I I do believe that. I don't believe that Campbell is on such a short leash though. I think they're going to give him some time to to get settled in. So I don't think that it's it's he's got to do it now or he'll never get the net back again. But I I also kind of like the way the league is going and, and the way Campbell plays. It's uh, it's not so much the amount of saves as it is the timing of the saves now. Yeah. Um, it, especially in a game like last night, where if you could just make that that save when you need to make a save. Well, that was like Grant Fuhr in the 80s, right? I mean, sure, he might let in three or four goals, but he wasn't going to let in that back-breaking goal. When the Oilers were tied or even close in the third period, he was going to lock it down and the Oilers had so many offensive weapons that they were eventually going to take it over. But he he never let in that that final goal that would you know break their backs. I always laugh when I tell this story. That I'm not going to name the goalie's name because he hates it when I tell this story. But I use it as a as a tool where we were in a six six game, and we were up six five. I was coaching a junior B team at the time. We were up six five. The goalie let in the sixth one, which sounds horrible. But it was after two periods, and he was in the room, and he goes, look, guys, I know we let in six, but I guarantee you I'm not going to let in anymore. So you just give me that one to put us over the edge. And even though he'd let in six goals, they believed him. And sure enough, he, he held firm, and he did not give up that seventh goal. And our team, when it was scored, the seventh goal, and we won the game. And that's kind of – you don't want your goalie to do that every night. But if you can have a goalie that you can still trust at that stage who who can mentally put himself in a position where, okay, I gave them two, but I'm going to close the door now. Right. And, and let's just get this thing done. I, th- I think that, that you can have that mentality there and, and still succeed on any given night. I just don't think that can be obviously every night. And he, do, he does have to get himself a game where it's a comfortable, calm game. That's, he does. I, I thought he played his I think his best game was actually the the two nothing loss to St. Louis, which one of them was an empty net goal. For but, sure. Yes. But that was a one nothing game all the way to the end, a, a goaltender's battle at both ends of the ice. And really looking at the game last night, there isn't more than one goal that I can really fault him on too much. I thought that he probably should have stopped the first one. I took a weird bounce off CeCe's skate, but you would have liked to seen him make that save. Other than that, I, I wouldn't say that any of the other goals the Preds got were over overly soft or anything like that. They they were they I, I mean he could have made the save sure, but there was like a, a couple deflections in front on the power play. They scored like I said two power play goals. So even the game against Chicago as well, um, it was a, another high scoring six five game. But one was a breakaway goal. There was a power play goal. There was a a point shot from 
right in the slot. You can't you can't expect him to stop those you know every time. But he's he's still settling in. Like I know he knows some of the guys from his time in Toronto that are are now on the Oilers, but it's it's still a new team where what he's played seven games for them. I don't think that anyone should be too worried, especially when his record is still five and two. You might like to see the goals against average and the save percentage look a little better. But um, other than last year when he had that great start with the Leafs, uh, he's apparently been a, a bit of a slow starter throughout his career. So we have to give him time to just adjust to his new surroundings, get comfortable. And and I think that come playoff time, he's still going to be the guy who's a starter, even if Stuart Skinner takes the, the reins for a little while here. I, yeah, I don't see it being a, an issue. I don't see any big problems right now. The team is playing differently now than it was at the start of the year uh, as a whole, I think. And even going down one there last night, it, just, it didn't feel like that was a big issue at all. And we obviously scored right away to to reverse that fortune. But even even that one goal, it wasn't like a it wasn't like last year when the panic set in and we were like, oh, here we go again. It was uh, it was just oh oh well, we gave up a goal. Let's just okay, let's just keep playing and see what happens. And you know what? Because the Oilers do have McDavid and Drysaddle on this team, and you know what? We have to give credit. Uh, Zach Hyman, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and Evander Kane are all averaging more than a point per game right now. So I mean that's an a really, really strong group of, of five forwards. But I will say, because the, McDavid and Dreisaitl are, you know, the two most uh, offensively gifted players in the league, even when they were down 3 nothing to the Canucks in the home opener, or in the second game of the season, trailing 3-1 to the Flames 10 minutes in, you never felt like they were out of either of those games because you always felt that McDavid and Drysdale could take it to another gear and get them right back into it. So I do feel like they need to clean up a little bit defensively. I, I think that the way that the Oilers were running the last 25 games of the season last year, the, the team defense was better than what we've seen early on uh, this fall. But if they can get back to playing a little closer to that, I think that with Skinner and, and Campbell and net between the two of them, the Oilers are going to get, good enough goaltending that they're going to win more often than not for for sure and i think we should be happy that again that's a problem we have we were worried about depth in our lineup last year and they shored that up i thought even before the year started but throughout the year the the depth came through and now it's when we were looking at our playoff roster it was almost difficult to slot all the people in that we wanted to have in that's a good problem exactly to have. And, and I think, I, you know, I, this year with the goaltending, it's the same thing. And I think that because we went through so many years where the Oilers were just happy to have one goalie <laughs> who could even give them... Because, you know, there was a tandem system for the past three years with uh, Miko Koskinen and Mike Smith. Yeah. And you were just hoping that one of them would be playing well at, at any given time. And the Oilers have been a, a good team for the past three years, they finished second place in the division, uh, the three previous seasons coming into this year, but they never seemed to both be clicking at the same time. When Koskinen was playing really well, uh, Smith would kind of be slumping or when uh, Smith was playing lights out, Koskinen would be going through a rough patch. So I think we're just to have two goalies who are both 
playing well at the same time is not something that fans in Edmonton are used to seeing. And it doesn't have to be such a clear-cut thing where this is our, our starting goalie and this is our backup. You can have... A, a, to having two good goalies, basically like you alluded to a second ago, is a good thing. Oh, for sure. And and the fact that the players can be just as comfortable with either of them in the net at any given moment is, is a big bonus. They don't have to play a different style or, or change the the way they they play they don't panic they they were still willing to take chances no matter who's in that net right and you know because skinner well because it was skinner's birthday on or yesterday uh, i guess that would be for anyone listening that's would be tuesday on uh this week but when he i would have given him the start because it was his birthday and because he had such a strong performance against the flames but when you look at the two teams that they're playing during the week this year uh, or during the week this week, the New Jersey Devils are uh, a much more dangerous offensive team right now than the Nashville Predators. So maybe saving Skinner for tomorrow night, Thursday, makes a little more sense because if he's the goalie that's playing better at this current moment, then it's maybe a smarter decision by Woodcroft to give him the night off against the Preds and, and save him so he's rested and ready to go for Thursday, assuming that he does play tomorrow night. If I was the coach, that would be the decision I would go with. It, yeah, it, it does make sense in that way. And we have a lot of games in this stretch in a very short period of time. They have 14 games this month as opposed yeah. to just playing nine in October. So, you know, it's really going to pick up, especially next week. They got four on the road against uh, Florida, Tampa, Carolina and Washington like there's there's some tough games there if you come back with two wins from that road trip I think you're happy <laughs> yeah for sure and and both goalies still intact mentally and physically and there's going to be back-to-back games as well so right there you you know that both of them are going to get to start at least one of those ones and coming into the season I thought that it would be more of uh, Campbell playing about 50 to 55 games and and Skinner closer to maybe 30. Do you sort of see that as the split, sort of a, a close 52 to 30, or, or do you think it'll be, in the end, closer to 40-40? I would still see it as a 50-30 kind of yeah, deal. Yeah, so do I. I. I would say that's reasonable, and, and still it's still reasonable and still my expectation at this point of the season, the way things have gone. Yeah. I don't see any reason to deviate from that plan. And And for any of the fans who are saying that oh, you know, the Oilers shouldn't have went and signed Campbell for five years when they still had Stuart Skinner. You couldn't bank on a goalie who has 14 games of NHL experience. Even if he does turn into be a a starting goalie as early as this season or next season, can you imagine in a year when you're trying to compete for the Stanley Cup to say, okay, well, uh, Mike Smith's on the IR and uh, Miko Koskinen went back to Europe. So the, the guy that we're going to roll out with, that we're going to trust to lead us to the Cup, has played in 14 NHL games. Like you, you couldn't go into the, the season with that lack of experience between the pipes. So it, it was necessary. I have been happy with that, no. No, and so that's what I'm saying. Will Skinner eventually become the starter maybe sooner than that five-year deal for Campbell is up? I, I could see that happening. But going, I still think that when the Oilers play their first playoff game in mid-April this year, it will be Jack Campbell and Nett. Um, will there be stretches this season where either one of them is getting the lion's share of the games because they're playing better than the other? That could happen. But 
when it when it comes to crunch time, I think you want Campbell in there. Like you, you look at how he played last year in the playoffs against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Going up against the defending Stanley Cup champion, he wasn't the reason the Leafs lost that series. No, he was not. He definitely was not. And I don't like when people say that at all. He let in two goals in that game seven. I mean, I'll take that all day against the defending champs. I would argue that he possibly outplayed Vasilevsky in that series. Yeah, I think you you could make a case. I mean, obviously, once it... Once it got down to a do-or-die game, I was pretty sure that the the Lightning were going to win it just because of their experience and because Vasilevsky is lights out in in games to close out a series. But uh, I I don't think that when they look back at the reasons they lost that series, anyone's going to point to Jack Campbell and say, oh, he needed to be better. Right. And the (laughs) Oilers fans specifically pointed out that our goalies needed to be better. And now we're crying, oh, no, one of our goalies is developing faster than we expected. We made such a horrible mistake signing another number one goalie for long term. Oh, what an issue. Exactly. I mean, look, and and I'm not trying to be harsh on anyone, like, but I mean, it's a this is a good thing to have two goalies who are playing well. It's it's like when some people will say, oh, don't put Evan Bouchard on the power play. You don't want him to score too much. And then his contract will be too expensive. I mean, that is a good. Are we not trying to win games? Of course, you want to have Bouchard on the power play. You're, we can worry about the contracts down the road. The salary cap is supposed to take. Uh, a pretty big jump in two years. It could even happen next summer, depending on how well they do financially this winter. But um, I'm I'm not too worried about playing players in a situation that could eventually raise their value. I'm more worried about winning tomorrow night's game and winning games throughout the rest of the season and eventually winning a Stanley Cup this year. If that costs a little more down the line, so be it. If, if some of these so quote-unquote bad contracts or bad decisions get us a Stanley cup and we have to suffer for a few years after winning that cup. It'll be, it'll seem like a, a less steep. Oh price yeah. Pay, you know? I mean, Zach Hyman right now has earned every dollar that he's been paid of that five and a half million. Now in year six or seven, if he's not quite a $5 million player in his mid thirties, it's, it's a lot easier to stomach if you've, won a cup or two in that time and especially because you have to put the pieces around mcdavid to win right now mcdavid is in his prime i'm not as worried about five six seven years down the road i'm worried about what they had to do to get him better players to play with at this given moment and look how valuable zach hyman was in the playoffs last year you don't think Connor mcdavid wants him here getting evander kane that was another highly skilled player that just sort of fell in their lap it was a a weird situation how his contract got terminated in San Jose, but all of a sudden here's a, 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 a top line winger with 30 plus goal potential. That's just an, a free agent and willing to come to sign with the Oilers because they have McDavid and Drysaddle. He even said that in his post game interview last night, he said, frankly, I'm here because of them. So he's not, he's not hiding the reasons why he, he signed with Edmonton. These players around the league want to come here because they want to play with these guys and they see the opportunity to win here. Absolutely. And I think, honestly, a player like Kane is is what this team has needed for a long time. Even when we had, you mentioned Eberly, Hall, Nugent Hopkins, hmm. and, and some of those skinnier, skilled guys, younger players. It was who, all wingers too. I mean, Nuge eventually was a, a center. 
but they were really building from the wing out, which, you know, ideally isn't the best decision. No, I, I loved all those guys. I mean, I'm still a big Everly fan. I, I mean, I'll, I'll always be a Nuge fan. Uh, haven't followed Hall as closely since he left Edmonton, but uh, I will say that uh, it's the, the, the pieces around the, the building blocks, you know, throughout the rest of the lineup. It's, it's a, it's, a lot better than it was, say, in 2010, 2011, 2012. As, as much as I love those guys and as much as I'm tough, call and want to try and keep the league safe, you yeah. need a little grid and sandpaper in your lineup. And we and I mean, they, they had, of... they well, they had guys like Darcy Hordachuk, but they couldn't play. They can't play hockey also. Yes. Yeah, so, so if you have a Ben Eager or a, a Darcy Hordachuk in your lineup who, you know, are fringe fourth-line players at, in the NHL at that point – that's not the support pieces that, that those young guys needed. I really think that they were brought into a situation where they were expected to be everything right from the start. You had to carry the team offensively. Now, McDavid and Dreisaitl had similar expectations earlier in their career, but they are a different level of player than um, Eberle or Hall or, or even Nugent Hopkins. Nugent Hopkins is a very skilled player still on this team, but he's not to the level that McDavid and Dreisaitl are. And back then in the early 2010s, they they were just thrust into that role. Can you imagine asking Dylan Holloway right now to come in and, you know, be the savior for this team? He's able to just work his way into the NHL as a third liner. He's even been on the fourth line since coming back from his injury and slowly sort of learn the game at the highest level. Yeah, it seems inconceivable to to throw him into the spotlight and be the be the. But guy that's what they did for year after year. Did. It was Gagne, Eberle. Now Eberle did go back to junior for two years, so they did actually develop him decently properly. But Magnus Payarvi right away, you know, he he came over a year after he was drafted. Hall, Nugent Hopkins. Now these are first overall picks too, so you expect them to be ready to play. But it was a lot of small skilled wingers and not enough help. Yeah, 100%. Okay, uh, let's just wrap up tonight by talking about Ryan Smith, who is going to be inducted into the Oilers Hall of Fame tomorrow night. All of the players who've already had their number retired by the team are automatically inducted. He'll be going in alongside Lee Fogelin. Um, now, you watched the Oilers in the the 80s when Fogelin was... Uh, you know, a, a tough-as-nails, stay-at-home defenseman. But I'm guessing that you have more memories of Ryan Smith than you do of him. And, you know, Ryan Smith uh, would be one of my all-time favorite players. I, my, my three favorite players in Oilers history are Wayne Gretzky, Ryan Smith, and Connor McDavid. And there's also an awesome picture of all three of them. They were the last three to step off the ice at Rexall Place, the final game that was played there when they did that ceremony after the game on April 6th. Uh, 2016. So I just want to go back and just talk about Ryan Smith for a second. Uh, when when I say his name, what memories come to mind? What comes to mind in in my eyes is that he was the Edmonton Oilers for me for for a while. Like, there's not much I can remember about. Things that, uh, like certain players, you know, some people you associate with a certain line mate or or something or a certain mm-hmm. event that happened around the team. He just became the Edmonton Oilers. He's absorbed into uh, uh, an era 
where he was the the focal point for me. I don't necessarily remember anything specific that he he did. There's not one play in my mind where I'm like, oh, that's a quintessential Ryan Smith play. Just just his his persona is what I sort of remember. The vibe that he created around the team and the type of player he was that was uh, that that became what the Oilers were for me while he was there. Um, it's it's just one of those. It's just one of those, almost like uh, I don't know, just a just a feeling or an aura that he creates is is more my memory of anything, especially with other things that were happening around the league. How he was able to keep himself so relevant and be so important to to the fan base uh, at a time where maybe there were other things to follow and other players to 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 maybe put more focus on. He somehow found a way. To, to persevere and have a long and successful career in a time where maybe there wasn't as much success around him. And that, to me, there's a legacy there that that he made his impact uh, on the league in general and, and the Oilers specifically, that there's just something there that will always have a place in my heart as an Edmonton Oilers fan. Yeah, I mean, I think you described it perfectly there. And, I mean, he was the poster child for the Oilers for – many years and we just in in that era before the salary cap it just seemed like the oilers were losing their best players year after year like you look at in the late 90s he was on a line with doug Waite and bill Guerin. well then they both left town and then he was on a line in the early 2000s with mike comrie and anston carter and then they both left town and then after the lockout he was on a line with alish hemsky and sean horkoff and it just seemed like he went through so many different incarnations of this team, but he was always the one presence that was always there. And just, yes, he's top 10 all time in goals, assists and points. But aside from being, you know, one of the statistical leaders ever and tied with Kevin Lowe for the most seasons as an oiler with 15, this is a guy who just every night you knew what you were going to get from him. He competed. No one ever outworked him. He battled in the corners. He took countless cross checks to the back, standing in front of the net, but he excelled at tipping pucks and uh, burying rebounds. Just he played that lunch bucket blue collar style that I think really endeared him to the, the fans in Edmonton. He just, he just was an Edmonton guy. And I think that he's one of the most popular players in Oilers history. And I, He's like I said, he's my childhood hero. I've I watched him my whole life growing up. <clears throat> I actually had the opportunity to interview him when I was working at a TV station in Lloyd Minster back in 2018. And um, I mean, that is still one of the best days of my life, getting to get a picture with my hero, interview him for a story and just, you know, get to talk to him. But really, when you when you look back at his career, the only thing that's missing is a Stanley Cup, and he came this close to doing it in 2006. I uh, I, I wish he could have had that moment to hoist the cup over his head in, in Carolina back 16 years ago. And um, I know that that's probably one thing that you know he feels like he's missing because if you look at the rest of his career, I mean, four 30-goal seasons – uh, I think he, uh, with that, and that's just with the Oilers. So, I mean, he, a consistent offensive player. He had over 800 points in the league, almost 400 goals. This is a guy who's won at every every international tournament he's ever played in. He's he's won gold. 
there's just that that one Stanley Cup championship that he that he narrowly came so close to getting but never did. But other still, regardless, um, one of the greatest Oilers of all time. When you think about it, all the cups we have won, and all the famous players we talked about throughout this podcast, yeah, all the incredible talents for for a significant number of people. Of all the players that have played for us, Ryan Smith is the identity of the franchise. So yeah, I, think I don't that think says everything right there. I don't think anyone has ever worn the Oilers crest with as much pride and passion as he did for his 15 years in oil country. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. I mean, remember, he requested a trade back to Edmonton while he was with the Kings in 2011 because he wanted to finish his career where he started. He just always felt like he was an oiler. And after he came back, uh, after being gone for four years, something just felt right again. And even though the Oilers were still a pretty bad team at that time, finishing near the bottom of the league, you know, picking these high draft picks, I don't know, just it, it felt like it, it was nostalgic getting to see Smith one one last time to to finish his career where where he always should have finished it. Yeah, it was like Guy Lafleur on the Rangers <laughs> returning. Just didn't, didn't to, look right. To the forum, but but in an Oilers jersey. But it was a lot like that. I mean, and and even Wayne Gretzky, you know, to to Oilers fans, he's always going to be an Oiler first and foremost. But in the United States, the images and video of him in an LA Kings jersey is probably more recognizable to them. We think of Mark Messier as an oiler, you know, one of the, the greatest oilers of all time, one of the greatest players of all time. But once again, in the States, his legacy is probably as a ranger and ending their 54 year cup drought in 1954. So, so you could, while I still think of Gretzky and Messier as oilers first and foremost, there's a whole a different audience out there that thinks of them in a different uniform. But I don't know if anyone really pictures Ryan Smith wearing any jersey other than the Oilers. That's a great point. You're absolutely right. And the fact that he was here for a lot longer than those players in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that says a lot right there, like you just said. You don't picture him as anything else but an Oiler. Yeah, and I'm so glad that he's going to be one of the first inductees. Since he retired eight and a half years ago and had that incredible farewell, you know, that was so similar to the one Gretzky had in 1999 at Madison Square Garden, I've been waiting for the Oilers to find a way to honor Ryan Smith and have him come out in front of the Oilers fans and and give a speech and just share memories about his time with the team and everything. And I uh, I can't wait to be there in person to see it uh, tomorrow night and just get to watch my hero have have that moment. So it's a, it's going to be a it's going to be a great uh, a great ceremony and hopefully the the Oilers will get a win for him tomorrow night too. Yeah, for sure. Well, Josh, before we call it a night here, I just wanted to ask. Uh, you mentioned to me off air that you and Dash might have a project coming up at the Heavy Hockey Network. Can you give us even a little bit of a preview about what we can look forward to? <laughs> a little bit of a tease. Yes. Um, saying it on air will actually maybe be the motivation we need to actually get it done mm. and put it out there because now okay. we're going to get called out. Now on you're it. committed to it. <laughs> um, so, so we have a little project called Heads Up. 
and it it will be my take on some of the the bigger hits but it will also be dash's take on some of the bigger hits that happened around the nhl so so look for that we'll be putting it out in youtube form and it, it, like i said it's a show called heads up awesome well, i look forward to seeing that uh where can people follow you and find your channel uh you can follow my twitter at tough call pod um, if you want to just watch my videos and, and see clips of hits and my takes on them, uh, that's the YouTube channel Tough Call. And I'm on other social media like Facebook and Instagram. If you just search Tough Call, I'm getting big enough now where if you just type Tough Call and that stuff will come up. Uh, but I do, I'm most active on my Twitter. And, and of course, I post YouTube videos pretty much every day. So that's where I'd like you to look for me. Awesome. Everyone, please go follow Josh and subscribe to his channel on YouTube. And thanks again. Hopefully we can uh, do this again sometime this winter. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This was fun. Awesome. Okay. So for Josh Bolton, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.